BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free here is congressman newt gingrich general chairman of GoPack. I am going to be a little bit professorial. You know, I, I was a college teacher, and there are certain habits you can't get out of. And I really have thought a long time about this opportunity because I think you are all collectively very, very important. You are the leadership of this party in one of the great regions of this country. And so I want to share with you where I think we're at and where I think we have to go. And it's going to be a little bit complicated, and I'm going to ask you to sort of, of, of stay with me for a couple minutes, because it's not going to be just your standard political speech. I, I'm going to be a little professorial. They wouldn't let me have a test afterwards, but, but I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'll try not to be quite as dry as a lecture. But I want to talk from the heart, and I want to say things I've never said before. I, I really worked on to make this speech today to share with you, and it's things that, that I've talked with Lee Atwater about in general, and I've talked with some people at the White House about, but I haven't really had a chance to try to put it all into a package, and it partly starts with, with the experience that, that Jim and others gave me of being allowed to serve as the whip and having the viewpoint of being the second leading Republican in the House in terms of leadership and working as closely as we do with, with uh, President Bush and John Sununu and Darman and that entire team that works with Jim Ray at the White House. and so. I've, I've been active in this party since 1960. I started a campaign in 1960 in Muskogee County, uh, in Columbus, Georgia. And I've run congressional campaigns. I ran for office for five years, lost twice, and finally won uh, the third time. And, I, and, I, and what I want to say to you comes from the heart, but is really my understanding of where we're at today. And I have to start by talking not about the Republican Party, and not talking to you as Republicans, but by talking about America and by talking about all of us as Americans, because I think you have to really start at that point. And I agree so deeply with what Jim Hansen said about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, I think, changed the history of the world. I think if you go back and you read any 19... If you read any 1979 magazine, malaise, decay, decline, powerlessness, Iran, Afghanistan, a drug advisor who was fired for, selling, for giving away illegal prescriptions, the whole process of the decay of the liberal welfare state in the modern left. And 10 years later, Glasnost and Perestroika and Hungary and Poland and Mexico and uh, the longest period of peacetime expansion economically and jobs in history. All the things that happened and one man's personal courage and personal vision made the difference. But he left us, I think, a very difficult legacy because I want to say something I, I don't, that I think we Republicans have to come to grips with about America. 
Reagan enabled us to recover from Carter, which was an enormous achievement. <laughs> But, but, because of the institutional failure of the Republican Party to gain a working control of the governments of America, we are like a patient who has recovered enough to have an operation. But the truth is, for America and Americans, that we are in deep trouble. And until we have the moral courage to say it bluntly and not be intimidated by the difficulty of saying, this is our ninth year in the White House and we are in deep trouble. Now why do I say we're in deep trouble? Because this is the beginning of the 90s, not the end of the 80s. And the 90s have to be a decade of reform if the 21st century is going to be a century of prosperity and freedom and safety. And unless we launch a reform movement of crusade-like proportions, we are not going to leave our children a country capable of leading the planet. The fact is, if you look at our biggest cities, if you look at our education system, if you look at our welfare system, if you look at the skyrocketing health care costs combined with collapsing inner city health care services, that in area after area, we have trend lines that resemble Argentina, not America. When 45% of our children drop out of the New York City schools, and that doesn't count the ones who get diplomas that they can't read, 45% actually are dropping out. You cannot have a democracy in a, in a country where only 40% of your college graduates know what century the Civil War was fought in. How can you have a public dialogue when most of your country can't find France on a map? And that's what's happening with the younger generation. The education crisis in America is greater than the crisis in drugs and violent crime. It is a deeper cancer because it attacks two of our most fundamental values. It makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to have a democracy, a representative government where we have a debate about public issues implying public knowledge. And it is impossible to compete in the world market when you can't do the math, you can't do the science, and you're not skilled enough and qualitatively tough enough mentally to do the kind of work the information age requires. Now this is a crisis of the first order. And we haven't used the language of crisis. We haven't talked with a sense of urgency. We haven't held the systems accountable. But let me carry you a stage further. We have invented a welfare system which is actively destructive of human beings. Now forget all the standard conservative rhetoric about what it does to the taxpayer and the waste of money, and think instead about the people who are involved. I'll give you a simple test. If twins arrive as immigrants in America, Korean, West Indian, doesn't matter where they come from, and one of them gets off the airplane and meets an American welfare worker, and they get help, and they get into public housing, and they get on AFDC, and they get food stamps, and they learn to be a welfare client. But the other one who didn't quite get lucky doesn't get any help from the American government, just has to go out and get a job, and they only get minimum wage, so they have to get a job in the evening to supplement the job in the daytime, and they can only afford to rent a little room in a, in a building, and they save a lot of their money because they don't have any help from the government. Ten years after the twins arrive, the one we have been helping will be trapped in a decaying, sick system, and their children will have a pathetic future, and the one we couldn't help will be prosperous in buying a store and opening up the future. Now, a country which builds and sustains a bureaucracy which destroys people is a country which is crazy and which is going to have a terrible future. And yet we do not have the moral courage to tell the truth. The fact is, we are waiting for Goldwater and Reagan to come again. We are waiting for people to come again who stand up and tell the blunt truth and don't worry about the second and third order consequences and don't worry about being misunderstood because they know if you tell the truth long enough that this is a country where one man and the truth is a majority, and Emerson was right, and it can happen. So let me tell you the truth. 
The truth is both the Department of Defense bureaucracy and the city of New York as a system are failures. The truth is both have to be overhauled from the ground up. The truth is we've invented a bureaucratic structure in the Pentagon so destructive of procurement that we cannot field a new tank within the same cycle as the Soviets. Now this is a country which fields new products every year as long as they're in the private sector. We've allowed the liberal Democrats and, and people whose presumption is if you try to produce something in defense, you must be bad, to create a system of procurement so stupid that we have reinvented the Soviet consumer production system. <laughs> and if you think I, I exaggerate, ask Jim or any member of the Armed Services Committee. And we don't have the moral nerve to stack up the regulations and say, this is dumb. And any liberal Democrat who wants to preserve the right to disarm America by red tape, fine, because that's what you're doing. You're raising the cost of the taxpayer and lowering the defense of the soldier. And it's even more true of New York City. The Democratic Party owns New York City. The Democratic Party has owned New York City for a half century. And we don't have the moral nerve to stand up and say, every poor person in New York City who is betrayed by the machine, every child who is betrayed by the school system, every person who is trapped by a unionized bureaucracy that doesn't care about the poor, that uses the poor as an excuse to enrich itself. And that is the modern big city Democratic Party. The city may decay, but by God, they'll have the mayor's office on top of the rubble. And we don't have the nerve to say it and to walk in that city and to be the active personal ally of every American who wants a chance at the American dream. Similarly, we don't have a problem with violent crime and drugs. We have a problem with abandoning a system that used to work. In 1951, there were three times as many policemen in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, per violent crime as there are today. Three times as many policemen. Now, what has happened? Have the city governments gotten tinier? Are there fewer employees? No. We have replaced cops with welfare workers. We can't protect you from being mugged, but somebody will hold your hand during the process of recovery. <laughs> If, if you think I exaggerate, the city of Washington, D.C. has 46,000 employees, approximately the same number as the government of Switzerland. 4,000 of them are policemen. Now, we simply adopted a rule that said, by attrition, half of all the vacancies for the next six years have to be replaced by policemen. We would probably double the number of policemen in Washington at no cost to anybody except, of course, the unionized bureaucracies. And yet, the left doesn't like policemen because they represent repression. And the right doesn't like to talk about more policemen because they represent cost. And so there is no party that actively advocates enough policemen and enough prosecutors and enough prisons and says, this is not a hard problem. You find a really violent 15-year-old in Central Park and you know how to solve it. You lock them up till they're too old to be violent. I mean, we know how to do that. Instead, instead, what do we do? We adopt juvenile delinquency laws which lead gang rapists to sing in the jail because they know they won't be prosecuted. Now, that's not their fault, and it's not the victim's fault. It's the fault of a country which tolerates a legal system which is self-destructive. And yet, we don't stand up and say that. We don't take it on head on. And we're afraid if we talk about crime, we'll be racist. The number one victims of crime in America today are black. And I am sick and tired of being told that the effort to protect an innocent black woman or an innocent black child is by definition rapist because somehow Willie Horton will feel bad. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. But the problem's intellectually even bigger than this. It's not just that the system has failed. I think every objective indicator we have is that the liberal welfare state and unionized bureaucracies have failed goes deeper than that. We are in the middle of a technological revolution of enormous power. The computer, television, satellites, all the things you know about and all the things you now use in your everyday life. We're a country where you walk through a grocery store to have people use a laser gun to have a computer read what you just bought to reorder and restock while ringing up your bill. And you have a government whose model of bureaucracy emerged before the typewriter. Every successful corporation in the world market is restructuring itself to meet the problems of the computer and the opportunities of technology. The only systems in America that are not being restructured are government. And yet our friends on the left say, let's not reform the public sector, let's go after the things that are wrong in the private sector. Well, let me give you a challenge. If you had $10 in 1950, and you have in constant dollars the same amount of money in 1989, which would be about $33 with inflation. And you're poor. You have more choices to spend your money in more places for more products at better quality in 1989, as long as it's the private sector. You want to choose fast foods? You want to choose movies? You want to choose videotapes? You want to choose cable TV? You want to choose anything which is private, clothing? You have more choices in the private sector. But in every aspect of the public sector, your life has gone down. Your public housing is worse. Your schools are worse. Your protection by the police is worse. Your health care is worse. Because they're all public monopolies. And monopolies decay. Because monopolies don't serve the customer. Monopolies serve the people in the monopoly. Now, as it was described in, in Wisconsin recently, when Governor Tommy Thompson offered a dramatic reform program to allow the poorest parents in the poorest school district in inner city Milwaukee a choice of sending their children to any school that would work. And the teachers union representative said, this is not an education issue, this is a jobs issue. And they had explained what was sick about America today. But it isn't the children, it isn't the learning, it isn't the future, it's the structure of the bureaucracy and whether or not the Democratic Party and their union allies are taken care of. Now, what is the challenge to us? I want to challenge every one of you to be bold. I want to challenge every one of you, first of all, to set the stage for yourself. Think of what you're seeing on television. Glasnost, Perestroika, Gorbachev, extraordinary changes in Mexico, Warsaw having a non-communist premier, the Hungarian Communist Party giving up its name. In the middle of the scale of change that Ronald Reagan created, shouldn't we have the same courage in America? Shouldn't we be as willing to change, as willing to rethink, as willing to reorient ourselves? And if we're going to be, 
I think that there are some very specific things we have to face up to. The Democrats historically have a hard time being bold about reform because it is their ideology and their allies. And I don't think we should expect them or ask the Democratic leadership to understand what we're talking about. They can't get past their lobbyists and their supporters and their unions and their bureaucracy and their left-wing values to think openly about it. And it's not their fault. It is who they are. They are the party of the big city machine. They are the party of the unionized bureaucracy. They are the party of socialism in its American form. But the Republicans, I think, have had an equally hard time talking candidly about this for three reasons. First, our conservatism has been opposition and anti-government. The legacy of Herbert Hoover was to be against government. Well, let me suggest something to you that's very profound. This is the ninth year we have the White House. You know, we all in this room grew up against Lyndon Johnson, against the Great Society, against McGovern, against Carter. Now we have this huge problem. The country agrees with us. <laughs> the, country, the country says in overwhelming numbers, yeah, they're dumb, so what are you going to do? And that leads to the requirement to make the very difficult and challenging transition from an opposition conservatism to a governing conservatism, from advocating anti-left-wing government to advocating conservative government. Now, we have not had since Theodore Roosevelt a Republican effort to think through what is conservative government? What are the values we have? But that's the first problem we've had, that our whole value system has been to be against, so we finish criticizing New York City and we walk off. I ain't good enough. What's our model of New York City? What's our model of Chicago? What's our model of Denver? Second, to be very honest, I'm going to say something that some of you will be uncomfortable with. But I'm going to say it anyway, because I think the truth has to be told. The truth is, very often, we didn't worry if they weren't our constituents. Now, let's be honest for a minute here. We have a profound, decisive moment in American history that we are now living in that is us. It's not anybody else. I was with Mickey Edwards yesterday. Mickey Edwards is a great leader of the policy committee. In 1977, made a really dramatic speech at the Young Republican National Convention about how weak the House Republican leadership was. It was not a very smart speech. The House Republican leaders read it. And for the following six years, he did not get an appropriations. <laughs> but it was a speech he honestly felt since in 1977, it had been 23 years since we were majority. Well, he and I were together yesterday, and I pointed out to him it's now been longer. And by the way, we're now the people he described. So what are we going to do? And we have this historic, wonderful moment that Ronald Reagan and George Bush have created for us. This, this opportunity. I, we once wrote a book called Window of Opportunity, which I recommend to all of you. It's available in paperback. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and this is a window of opportunity that Reagan and Bush have created, a moment in time that is very precious for us to take care of. But it starts with this premise. If we are going to care that a nine-year-old girl in the ghetto says the Pledge of Allegiance, then we have to care about the rest of her day and the rest of her life. Now that is a Republican Party. And that means actively thinking beyond our immediate precinct and our immediate office and our immediate situation to truly be the party of all Americans. Third, we are trapped a little bit, and I'm very sensitive to this. We are trapped a little bit because we've controlled the White House for 17 out of 21 years, because we have the presidency, and we've made the intellectual mistake of thinking that having the presidency is the same as having the government. And it's not. But we get trapped a little bit because, after all, the president has to make the system work every day. The president can't take the kind of radical gambles that an opposition party can take. The president has to actually be responsible and cautious and know what he's doing. But that, does, that shouldn't prevent the rest of us, with George Bush's blessing, from inventing an absolute explosion of reform ideas and trying them out at the county and the school board and the city and the state level and throwing them into the legislative hopper and letting a ferment 
of a thousand reform proposals bubble so that the president can then pick the ones that make sense after two or three years of debate and the president can include them in the State of the Union because we've all done the work, we've done the scouting, we've cleared the field, we've planted the crop. And the president can come along and then gratefully help us with the harvest of good ideas. But all too many of us have sat back and said, well, the president has to lead and I plead guilty. Because for years, I had, I, now that I'm in a whip's position, now that I'm in the room on a regular basis, I had never understood how that really is serious. This is the leader of the free world, President of the United States, and he can't afford to have nine nutty ideas. I can. I'm only the whip. <laughs> now, if we are going to learn from those three lessons, and if we are going to meet the challenge, let me just tell, tell you how I think we're going to do it. We are going to develop a caring, humanitarian, reform Republican Party. And we're going to mean all three words. We're going to truly care about the nine-year-old and everyone else. We're going to care about the physically challenged. And I thought that was such a wonderful moment to have that kind of, of cooperation from the private sector and the government on behalf of greater opportunities for all Americans under all circumstances. And that's what we should stand for. And if we're going to be a caring party, then as we learn things, we have to be a humanitarian party. And that means a willingness to set a tough standard. Compassion's a good word, but it's not strong enough. We can't just say, gee, we feel sorry that you're sitting here on the street, or gee, we feel sorry that you have this problem. We have to apply our conservative principles and our fundamental values to set the standard of what is the situation I wish my daughter was in. What's the situation I wish that my son-in-law was in? How do I hope that my mother will be taken care of? And how do I try to maximize the chance at a humanitarian level that this country can live up to that challenge? And to be very blunt, if we are a caring and a humanitarian party, we're going to be a reform party because the welfare states unionized bureaucracies are simply disintegrating. Now, as we become a reform party, we're going to start developing a governing conservatism. We're going to apply conservative principles in cooperation with the people we're trying to help. And I'll give you four words that you really ought to think about and learn and apply. Because they're the key model to how we become the, the, the party for all Americans who want a better future. First, we have to listen to the people we think we're going to help. We have all sorts of philosophical principles. We very seldom just walk into the local precinct, knock on the door, visit the church, drop into the local coffee shop, and just listen and find out what are the realities they live in, what do they think is going on. And then our hard to find, you can start on any public housing project in America and just walk in and say, I'd really like to know what you're going through and what you wish you were going through, and I'd like to see if I can help. When we listen, by the way, it can't just be transactional. It can't be, sure, I'm glad I'm here, sure, I'm glad you're here, aren't you glad I came here? You have to go to a second word. You have to learn. The truth is we don't know enough about America. We don't know enough about all the folks of this great country. We aren't tied in enough with all the possibilities. And as we listen and learn, we're going to find that about half the time we can offer common sense help because they just don't know what's going on in certain ways. And we have access and we have opportunity and we have experiences. And together, by listening and learning and helping, we're going to improve things. And when a person has had an activist, a citizen, walk in and listen and learn and help, they're going to be prepared to turn to you and say, now lead. And if you follow the model of listen, learn, help, and lead, if you say, we know our principles are right, but we don't necessarily know how to apply them in your life, so tell me about your life so that together we can sort all this out and together we can change America. Now, as we succeed, let me give you one warning, and it's a warning that many of you in the West have already learned the hard way. We're going to be too big a group to always be pleasant with each other. We're going to have a lot of fights. When you get to be big enough to be a majority, you have to shift from conflict resolution to conflict management. You know, when you're a minority and you get in a fight, you started the morning you're a minority, you kick out the five people who are fighting, you're still a minority. <laughs> When you're, in a, when you're a majority and you get in a fight, you can't afford to kick anybody out because you then will qualitatively cease to be a majority. So that means all of a sudden you have to wake up every morning with a cheerful persistence that says, gosh, I wonder what we're going to do today to mess up. 
I wonder how we're going to fight each other today. I wonder what brand new thing, you know. We didn't know that having the leading Samoan in downtown Portland sit at the head table was going to infuriate 19 other ethnic groups who also wanted to be at the head table. And we're going to now have to solve this problem. And we didn't know, and you're going to find all, you're going to find you use the wrong words sometimes, you, you deal with the wrong people, uh, you inevitably didn't have enough time, and you inevitably didn't do enough things. And by the way, there are nine serious ideological fights, two of which involve whether when we go in the gold standard we should do it in one-pound blocks or five-pound blocks. And the, those two factions have said they're walking unless we pick their version. And I say I happened before the gold standard, so I can say that with some passion. I personally am a one-pounder, but that's I won't get into it. And you just, you've just got to relax a little bit, and you've got to say to yourself, isn't it wonderful we're growing into a majority? <laughs> now, let me, let me carry you a step further. And, and I want to say this, and I want to preface this with something, because I'm going to say some very tough things about the Republican Party as a party and an institution. This is not about Lee Atwater. It's not about Jeannie Austin. It is not in any way about Ed Rollins. Those are wonderful people. I work with them every day. They're doing a wonderful job. Yeah, but once again, we don't have the luxury like the socialist of sitting back here and saying, boy, I sure hope they solve it in Washington. Remember, our ideology says local, decentralized, us, individual responsibility. So what I'm going to say is not about any person. It's about the culture I've spent my entire adult life in. And I want to start with this notion. The American people are more ready to take power away from the left than we are to work with the American people. I want to give you some numbers just to sober and think about. Because I find, when I first read them, I couldn't believe it, and it changed my whole life. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. In 1968, the left got 43% of the vote. 43%. Four years after the high water mark of Lyndon Johnson. In 1972, they dropped to 38%. In 1976, we had collapsed because of, of uh, Watergate. But they didn't nominate a left-winger. Jimmy Carter ran as a Southern Baptist populist against the liberals, beat every liberal in the primaries, ran, ran slightly to the right of Gerald Ford. And in polling data on election day on social values, he was to the right of Ford. And, he, and, and there was no liberal on the ballot. In 1980, Jimmy Carter had collapsed. And yet he beat Edward Kennedy in the primaries. Because Kennedy was a real liberal. Jimmy Carter got 41%. In 
1984, Walter Mondale went to San Francisco. He stood up and said with great pride, I really am a liberal and I really will raise your taxes. <laughs> the, the country said, yes, we were afraid of that. <laughs> the guy got 41%. In 1988, it took us until October to get Dukakis to use the word liberal. He was 19 points ahead in May. We had, for the first time since 1836, elected a sitting vice president. It had not been done in 152 years. On election day, there are two things to note. We got 54% of the vote. He got, the left got 46. And yet, if everyone had voted, and this is very important for you to lock in your head and really think through for a long time. It is a revolution as big as Gorbachev. If everyone had voted, our share would have gone up. That has never been true in my lifetime until 1988. If all Americans had voted, we would have gotten 57% and Dukakis would have been at 43. In my judgment, if we could have gotten him in the tank one more time, he'd have been down to 41, <laughs> but we didn't get there. Now, in that setting, I want you to think about this for a minute. There has been a center-right coalition against the left since 1968. And yet, we as a party have not grown enough. And the challenge to us, and this is not easy, and I really appreciate the way Jim said it a while ago because it is, it is the first time I've heard a Republican member of Congress face up to it and say it right. What we have to do is decide we're going to be a majority. We're going to try to be a majority in 90. We're going to try to be a majority in 92. We're going to try to be a majority in 94. And we're just going to keep going at it until we break through. And that means you run in every district every year. It means you challenge the Democrats every day. It means you figure out how to have a permanent opposition party in every district. It means you, you reach out and recruit. But let me carry you a step further. If we're going to make Jim Hansen chairman instead of ranking member, we have to apply three principles. First, mobilizing the young. Second, creating an agenda worth voting for. And third, growing big enough by forming an alliance with the American people. And let me just very briefly explain these. As I said a while ago, for the first time in, America, in, in my lifetime, we are so much more the party of the young and they are so much less likely to vote that if everybody had voted in 1988, we'd have gone to 57%. Now let me tell you something about how dumb we are as a party. And I mean this bluntly, and we've got to confront it, and we've got to get over it. In 1986, for the first time in history, young black males were more likely to vote than young white males. Now, if we had had normative white male turnout in 1986, just the normal white male turnout for people under 35, we'd have kept control of the Senate. Now, that's not a complicated problem. I'll tell you this now as you plan for 1990. If you don't have activist groups in every high school, and you don't have activist groups at every Votech school, and you don't have activist groups at every college, you are not going where the ducks are. A majority of the ducks in younger America are Republican. According to the, to the latest big study, it's 52-38 Republican if you're under 30. But we are a party which is used to organizing adults over 45. I mean, the challenge, for example, to the Women's Federation has to be, how do you organize single women who are working, who are 26 years old? The challenge to all of us has to be, you know, if we don't triple the younger turnout in 1990, we're just dumb. Now, this is not easy, and I'm not saying it's, uh, this is a very hard thing to do, but it's a clear thing to set as a principle. Now, let me make a suggestion to you. You start by putting it the highest single item on your priority. You think about it every day, you talk about it every day, and you work at it every day. And eventually, enough of us will do it long enough that some of us will be smart enough to get a breakthrough, and then the rest of us will steal it. <laughs> and that's the only way we're going to get there. But any Republican Party and any campaign in this country which doesn't start every morning by asking how we're mobilizing the young is failing to make the historic breakthrough. There's a second point. We have to have an agenda worth voting for. I'm going to give you some numbers you have never heard that are startling. The real election results of 1988 measured in adults was 23% for Dukakis, 
27% for Bush and 50% who cares. Now there's a lesson in this. The way we who've been in the business for a long time run politics is simple. We say, all right, now if we got, if there's 50% there, if I could get Dukakis down to 22 and Bush up to 28, boy, that would be a great campaign. Well, let me ask you something. If you have a 50% market share that hasn't been tapped yet and you're a corporation and your choice is, let's put in a product line to compete with the other guy in, inside the current market or what if we found a new product line that brought in the 50% who aren't voting? In 1936, that happened. People remember the, the uh, FDR Landon. I don't, I'm not suggesting you lived it out, but you've, you've studied the, the FDR Landon 1936 result. Landon did better than Herbert Hoover. He brought in a million more votes than Herbert Hoover. FDR brought in seven million. They drowned the Republican Party. Well, what's our potential for doing that? We're doing better with young people. We are seen now as a party that's competent. The other party is, is a party that if we are aggressive about reform, they become the defenders of a decaying status quo. My challenge is real simple. Our goal for 1992 should be to find a set of issues worth voting for. It's a very simple model. Listen, learn, help, lead. Does this, is, does this explain how you might be better off in buying a house enough that you'll go register to vote? No. Well, let me try the next one. I mean, you, you just listen to people long enough until you f let them tell you what they, what they want. Let them tell you what they'll vote for, and then you have to apply your conservative philosophy to help them get what they want. But when we invent an agenda worth voting for, if our goal is to increase turnout 15 percentage points, with us getting two out of three. So the result in 1992 is 37% for George Bush, 28% for the Democrats. Now we've had a revolution. And then there's the last thing we have to confront. The fact is, we are not big enough to play in the big leagues. The Republican Party is like a medium-sized college football team going to the Super Bowl because the Democratic Party isn't a party. We keep measuring the wrong indicators. The Democratic coalition is the party, the big city machine, the labor unions, the left-wing activist groups, and alliances with the news media and with academe. That is a huge system of power. That is three or four or five times bigger than we are. So what happens to us in special elections? They run a Secretary of State, two U.S. Senate candidates, this is a big league party. They have, they have bench strength at a scale we can't begin to play against. And there is no solution that grows the Republican Party rapidly enough. Again, I've spent almost 30 years in this business, and I'll just tell you flatly, I've spent 11 years at planning at the NRCC. It is impossible for us to grow from here out fast enough. But there is a potential solution. We have to consciously decide that we are going to be the allies of the American people. That we are going to reach out and inform and inspire and arouse the American people. That we're going to help them learn the game of politics. That we're going to work with them. And that we're going to create a movement three times the size of the current Republican Party. Which means we're going to give up a lot of control. You bring that many new people in and that much new energy in and that many new resources in, you're in a different league, you're in a different game. And it's going to be a little scary to us. But I'll give you one example. 60,000 people ran for school board in Chicago this fall. Because for the very first time, they broke. So if we start thinking about how do we become the friends of the American people? How are we the allies of the American people? How can we help the American people? Rather than what we've always asked, at least every place I've ever been, how can we get them to be Republican? If we'll be their allies, they'll eventually figure out they're with us. But that does mean giving up a lot of control and having a lot of strangers show up. And it does mean we have to drop that habit that every one of us has. The brand new person walks in the room. We ask two questions. Who are they? Why weren't they here last year? And we're going to have to learn. We're going to have to learn to change that. Now, it is a huge challenge. Now, I want to close with a true story. Yesterday, and I want to share from the bottom of my heart how important I think where we're at is, what an enormous window of opportunity that Reagan and Bush have given us, 
and how great the burden on us is individually. Yesterday morning, I met with 11 Soviet journalists, the editor of Pravda, Izvestia, whole group of Soviet publications. They ask questions that were so fundamental that it was one of the most extraordinary moments of my life, and I will never forget it. They said, they started by saying, we are inventing a Congress. We have never had a real Congress. And we want to know, what does the whip do? And how do you function? And how do you vote? And, and I began to walk them through, and I gave them, in fact, uh, each of them as a souvenir, got a copy of one of our whip cards that they could take back that shows, you know, where we list members' names and we ask them, how are you going to vote in this, how are you going to vote in that? And they said, how much pressure do you bring to bear? And I said, well, they elect me whip, so, I, so they are my customers. It's not much pressure. I said, think of it more like Gorbachev than Stalin. None of them laughed. Uh, <laughs> And then I took them into the House chamber because we weren't in session. And one of them was a Latvian who was an editor and a member of the Congress. And I took him up and had him sit in the Speaker's chair. And I asked the editor of Pravda to stand where the President of the United States stands when he delivers the State of the Union. And the editor was who was a member of the Congress, who was a Latvian nationalist. He said, I'm a communist because we were all communists if we were active, but I belong to the People's Front, and I'm a Latvian nationalist, and we will never again have Bolsheviks. This was just him passing to me as we walked up. He was physically trembling. And he came down. And he said, I never, never thought this would happen. Now, what Jim was saying is that this process of being speaker, this process of freedom is spreading. That because of Ronald Reagan, a 60-year-old man from Latvia, Let me say it differently. Each of us has the chance in the next decade, one by one, to reach out to that nine-year-old black child, to reach out to the Hispanic, to rebuild our schools, to reclaim our streets. I apologize for being so emotional, but I, I can't quite communicate, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm communicating. Um, there's a moment. said to me, that's what it's all about. And I guess what I, I'm going to finish briefly or I'll get emotional again. What I'm trying to say is, because of our parents and our grandparents and 200 years of effort, because of Ronald Reagan and George Bush, because of a lot of us, all over the world, there is a brief moment when freedom could win. It's not George Bush's job. It's not Lee Atwater's job. It's not Jim Hansen's job. Each of you, every morning, brush the teeth of the person who is morally responsible for reforming America so that we can continue freedom everywhere. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you to the University of West Georgia, Ingram Library Special Collections, and specifically the Catherine and Jeff Breedlove Political Collection. 
they provided us with digital copies of the GoPack tapes. You can learn more about the GoPack tapes on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, and this is Newt's World. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free ever thought about owning a piece of history introducing the newt gingrich contract with america coin from legacy precious metals my limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic republican victory in 1994 marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you.